Well, good afternoon, everybody. Oh, that is like, it's definitely graveyard. Um, it's really good to see you. Thanks for um, coming um, to this um, seminar about teenage spirituality. The proudest thing, the proudest nugget in this whole thing that I have is of the title, Smells Like Teen Spirit. I spent longer thinking about that than I did about it. And I think actually, I reckon, like who, who doesn't get the reference, who's got no idea what Smells Like Teen Spirituality, Smells Like Teen Spirit is about. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 Nirvana, like, it's a whole generation stuff going up. Um, but we're gonna just spend a bit of time this afternoon thinking about um, this question of teenage spirituality, um, thinking about what it is um, to nurture and foster young people having a connection with God um, at what is quite a, um, a crazy time um, in their lives. And um, next door is the, um, the Children's Spirituality Workshop. And lots of stuff kind of dovetails on the back of that um, because I recognise that there's a difference between um, being a child and being a teenager. There's differences in how you think, differences in how you interact with the world, um, and thus there, it's completely logical that there are differences in how you um, connect with God when you become um, a teenager. Um, and in a, just help us like, think about that, and I'll break that a little bit. I'm going to ask people um, to share, so you get thinking about it now, um, something which you, believe, which you can't believe you believed as a child. So something you believed when you were a child that you can't believe that you believed that you believed when you were a child. Simple, yeah? Um, just to introduce a little bit about myself, I'm not, um, I wouldn't sound like I'm an expert in um, this particular topic. Um, this is my um, family. I don't have teenagers. I have two um, small boys, Henry six, Isaac's three, uh, Barry, my wife, um, next to me, not another random uh, woman. Um, I'm a Salvage Army officer. I've been a Salvage Army officer for nine years. Um, the last two of those years, I've been at William Booth College, where my uh, role, I teach on some of the higher education um, programs, biblical studies, and a mission. Um, but I'm also responsible for all the practical um, elements of cadet uh, training. Uh, before that, we were for seven years in Hartithe, in Kent, uh, where we were the core officers. That probably really were a lot of my interest in where we're talking about this afternoon comes, because um, the three jobs that I had before I was an officer, um, which probably in order of importance, um, I was a mobile, mobile DJ, so I spelled Teen Spirit a lot, um, like 18th, 21st, in fact it was mostly like 40th, 50th, 50th wedding anniversaries, the, like, the sexy gigs, but um, I was a mobile DJ. Um, I also um, worked as a, I was a mental health um, support worker in a residential setting um, for care leavers predominantly, and um, I was a youth worker. So I worked for um, the Salvation Army part-time at uh, Liverpool Valley Corps as a youth centre on a, a housing estate, and I worked for the local authority um, as a statutory youth worker um, in a youth club and for the Duke of Edinburgh Award. So I've always been like, interested in young people as a part of my life and my working life, um, and have come to be really interested in this question about how do we believe what we believe? What is it to believe anything? Why do humans believe? what they believe. Why can we make a claim that we believe in a creator of the universe that um, sends his son into the world, that communicates through a, a book that was written um, or composed over thousands and thousands of years. So th that's where sort of this sort of stuff comes from, these, these collision um, of worlds, both being interested in young people and being really interested in God. Um, something I believed as a younger person that I can't believe I believe now um, was when I was 12. And we went on a school trip to France, and Mr. Charles, the chemistry teacher, 
was in charge of this. I don't know why he was the chemistry teacher did the trip to France, not the French teacher, but he did anyway. And um, he would every so often come on the, um, the microphone at the front of the coach and uh, give a little fact or something. And he, we were driving through France and we saw these. And he said, um, France lies on a tectonic plate boundary, um, which means that they have to have earthquake protectors um, throughout the countryside, which drill down into um, the ground and um, stop the tectonic plates from moving. And that's what they are. And um, I went on holiday with my parents three years later to France. I said, oh, look, there are the earthquake protectors. And it really stuck with me. So that was something I believe that I can't believe I believe. Has anyone got any of those that they want to share? Something you believed as a child that you can't believe that you believed when you were a child? I've got from a young person, it is actually. It is, yeah, whatever. Well, it, is, <laughs> it, is, it is my uh, child's godmother, so like, yeah, believed that if she had a slice of bread, um, then she'd stop moving the toilet and um, it would soak up the weed. Wow. Mm. So, That's well, deep. so they're what <laughs> used to give them like, slides in the car. So they wouldn't need a weed. A good placebo effect, maybe. Yeah, good one. Oh, <laughs> Thank yes. you. Anybody else got one that they can't believe they believe when they're a child? Come on in, come on in, you're welcome. Um, we're just uh, getting ready to sing a line of a solo, so if you want to go next. So we're just talking about something we can't, uh, people are sharing, things that they can't believe they believed when they were a child. So they believed that when they were a child, they can't believe they believed. Anyone else got one up their sleeve ready to go? My mum is Swiss, and we always had Swiss fondue, and um, we were always told that after eating the fondue, we shouldn't drink cold drinks afterwards, which there is a slight truth in it, but we used to get told it would form a hard ball of cheese in our stomach, and it would have to be, you know, and stuff. But since then, I've discovered that actually probably isn't as true as I thought it was, and I have had cold drinks after a fondue, and it doesn't. Didn't okay. Talk about that traumatic experience. You know, it's like, yeah. there's one uh, right there. Yeah, excellent, thank you. Hello, you okay? Um, anybody else? Uh, so they believe in their child, I can't believe they believe. My dad used to tell me that he used to go to Brussels to buy Brussels sprouts. Ah. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Anybody else have one or two more things that can't believe they believe when they're a child? If the wind changes, your face will stay like that. Yeah, that must have changed a long time ago, Emma. Wow, well, you know, I should have listened really, shouldn't I, you know? Very good. Very good. One last one. Square eyes, if you want to <laughs> uh, The point is that the stuff that we believe when we're children that we just take um, for granted. When I first started um, going out with Berry, who became uh, my wife, um, we, I don't know why she did when I tell you this story. There's all sorts of things like this, but we were walking along the South Bank in London and we got out for a day, and I said to her, Do you know why um, on the London Eye the capsules are on the outside of the wheel? When I was like 19, 20 at this point, she goes, No. I was like, oh, if there's a terrorist attack, they just um, turn around and plop into the Thames and everybody could float around again. <laughs> and, and she was like, oh, really? And I was like, yeah, really. And she started to believe it. There's something about when somebody that we, we trust or maybe think um, should know better tells us something um, that makes it believable to us. And uh, one of the things that we're sort of thinking about what driving um, this sort of the next half an hour conversation this afternoon is, how do we come to believe the things that we come to believe? And um, lots of people have thought about this question um, from an academic 
um, perspective. And there's a whole um, swathe, particularly at the end of the um, 20th century, um, of people that are interested in um, psychology and spirituality and the relationship um, between um, our brains and how our brains develop and how that affects what we believe. And um, lots of theories um, out there, we're not going to talk about it in too much detail, um, but um, one of them um, is by this uh, um, a North American called John Westerhoff. Um, it started in the 70s, it came really seminal right the way through the, um, even until the early noughties and today. And he said that a person's faith, what a person believes, is kind of like a tree trunk. And uh, the idea is that the other way a tree, uh, tree grows in rings and grows outwards. And saying that actually, you know, um, a child still has a faith, um, an adult has a faith, both have a faith, but uh, they look different and they grow in different ways and they're, they're built upon. And um, he sort of said that in a, a child, the youngest children have a faith that he, um, he termed an experienced faith. So a, a young child or a toddler has a faith that is just based purely on what they experienced. Um, it's the toddler waving the flags or banging the tambourine at the back. They're just part of the faith community, joining in, taking things on face value um, for what they are, and it's just their experience. That's the kind of faith that a young child has. Um, he then identified that as a, a child um, grows, they start to have what's called an affiliative faith, a faith that they feel is somehow theirs, but is copied from their caregivers, or um, <coughs> often has the expectations of those um, around them put on. So I think a great example of this in the Salvation Army is becoming a junior soldier. Um, and maybe if some of you have been a junior soldier, you think back to what informed that decision. And um, often it is, you know, it's a done thing, it's what other young people were doing, it's what I thought um, my parents wanted me um, to do. Um, they're often things that people reflect back later on at that experience, but it's still a faith. It's a, young, it's a, it's a child saying, um, this faith is mine, this faith belongs to me. But then, Westerhoff sort of identified that along um, as, as a young person becomes an adolescent, you think about all the changes that happen in the, the, the biology and the, the psychology of a teenager, um, that brings with it um, a searching faith. And um, Westerhoff says this is quite a troubling time in the life um, of, um, of, a, of, a, of an adolescent, that their faith is no longer simply that which was inherited from their parents or their faith community. It's a faith that starts to ask questions. It's a faith that starts to wrestle with big ideas. Um, it's a faith that is searching for something. And then he says that you know, it, re it re uh, results in an owned faith. He describes this as the adult faith, which is that this is a faith that is mine. This is a faith that I understand. This is a faith that belongs to me. What's really interesting, there's a lot, we won't go into it uh, today, but if you are interested, there's a lot of critique we can make of Westerhoff. And one of the things is I... Um, I, I can see this in adults too. It doesn't relate to what Westerhoff ties to um, tie it to developmental phases through a childhood into adulthood. Um, I, um, I, I've seen people come to faith in, in adulthood that have this very experienced or affiliative faith. They become super enthusiastic and they want to be involved in everything. And um, they go to uniform and they buy the hat. You know, that kind of thing, like they're, they're, they're sold out for it. They want to do things like sell a war cry. And then they reach this searching part of faith and um, it all starts to fall apart for them. You know, like um, they have a crisis in their life and they're asking, why God did you let this happen to me? I thought you were just amazing. I thought this was going to be great all the time. And um, they walk away. Um, and I think these, these patterns are part of all of our development. I think there are times in my adult life where 
I've had a, a searching faith, a faith that is trying to ask questions, a faith that is trying um, to search out. So in that sense, there's nothing, um, it's not, it doesn't just relate um, to children and um, young people. It doesn't just relate to young people that grow up in Christian homes either. It's, it's to do with the faith community. But this afternoon, I'm particularly interested in what's going on in this blue ring, in the searching faith, because as we all know, you become a teenager, interesting things start to happen. And I'm gonna watch um, a short documentary clip um, I've got. A, it's about. Um, it's a documentary clip explaining what happens when somebody becomes a teenager. Um, it does drop like a, a minor grade swear word, so it's not like um, it's not like the f bomb or anything like that. But um, like I wouldn't say it in front of my nan. It's that kind of thing. So hopefully, I'm going to sense it is. Thirty seconds to go before I'm thirteen. Twenty nine. Twenty Remember, you still got school tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Divine. Yeah, I'm 13. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday, Kevin. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday, Dick. Go. 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 A teenager. <laughs> Kevin. What? It's your birthday, Kevin. Oh, I know. Happy birthday, Kevin. Okay, stop going on about it, will you? <laughs> What's enough bloody ice cream? Oh, come on, Kevin. You've eaten five tubs on your own this evening. Remember? So unfair. I hate you. <laughs> Kevin, don't speak to your mum and I like that. Oh, I didn't say anything! Oh, oh, oh. No, Kevin, that is for the morning. I can't do anything anymore! <laughs> oh well, seeing as you've started, mm, at least it'll cheer him up. Super Mario Kart. I hate Super Mario, it's sad. I want a bloody hi-fi. Right, that's it, off to bed. I'm not going to bed, I'm going out. Oh, you're so stupid, Kevin, you can't go out now. Why not? Because it's 12 o'clock, it's way past your bedtime, it's pouring with rain outside, it's dangerous for a child on his own, you've got nowhere to go, and you've got school tomorrow. Oh, 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 that is so unfair, I hate you! <laughs> all right then, I will go to bed, okay? Happy? Good night, Kevin. Don't bloody shout at me! <laughs> um, what I love is that it's like the first time some people have seen that. Like, that is like so <laughs> retro now, it's coming back around again. Um, but there are particular challenges about life as a teenager and what it brings into the teenage world and that affects um, spirituality. Hello, Pokemoshe, how are you doing? Good, yeah, good. Um, that affects how we do um, life and it affects how we do faith too. And um, you know that, um, you're in, engaged in this stuff on a, on a regular basis, week in, um, week out. Oh, bye. <laughs> 
There was some research that was done uh, by Youth for Christ, um, which, like, again, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that's engaged in um, youth ministry, um, but young people were asked about what they thought about um, spirituality and about God, and 51% of young people said that they believed in a, a, a form of supernatural power or being that was greater than themselves, and 36% said if they're invited to find out more about God or spirituality, they'd be interested. So we know that young people have a, a sense of spirituality, but I can't be the only church attender, um, the only church leader, the only person who's been involved with youth ministry that has noticed that there seems to be less and less young people in the church. And I don't know when, um, I read a brilliant article about it that said, crisis is not too strong a word to find out about this, this, this problem of where are young people in churches? Where are teenagers in churches? I'm gonna ask it in a minute, I'll take a, a little bit of a list. Like, what is the biggest um, challenge that you face at the moment in your ministry um, with teenagers and with young people? Um, but I look around and um, I, I am still just about, despite my hairline, um, of what we call a millennial, and I look around at my peers, <coughs> the people I grew up with, going to church, going to music school with, that kind of stuff, and I'm like, where are they? They all exist in different spheres other than the church, but the research says people are still interested in, in God. Um, a story of, um, of a young person recently who wrote to um, Salvation Army leadership. It was when the George, George Floyd thing um, happened, and um, they were they wrote to Salvation Army leadership and said, "I'm a lifelong Salvationist," and um, she's 22. I'm a lifelong Salvationist, and um, I really want the Salvation Army to take a stand about this issue. And um, she hasn't been to the Salvation Army for about eight years, but she still identifies as a lifelong. Salvationist, that's sort of half in, half out, sort of affiliated, sort of not kind of spirituality. I don't know if that lands with um, what anybody else is experiencing. I wonder, let's take, um, let's take a list and think if we can address some of them this afternoon. What are the challenges you face in relation to sort of teenage spirituality um, in your core or a centre or a setting? Willingness to commit. Willingness to commit. What do you mean by that? Um like you say, affiliate themselves to your church, to, you know, belong. Yeah. And yeah. that sense of belonging. Yeah, so like a little bit of belonging, but not a lot of belonging, no. or, uh, yeah, interesting. Same for anybody else, or anybody, any other experiences? Consistency as well. Consistency. Oh, like you might not see them for weeks. Yeah, you've prepared a session, and tonight two people have showed up. You don't prepare the session at 46 pitch through the door. We've all been there. A generation before, people would tend to commit to coming to that week in the cow. Yeah. And that's the difference in the millennials. Yeah. They don't tend to, to commit. I see that in my son. Yeah. <laughs> that the commitment I did at that age is different to what he did. Yeah. Does. And why do you think that is? I can't put my finger on it, to uh -huh. be honest. But it's not, I'm not, my son's not an. Uh, isolated in that scenario. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can see that in other people. Yeah, yeah. As age. Yeah, anyone else saying to speak into that about I this? I think they have too much going on. A lot going on? Yeah, and I think that's the trouble. They have so much on they can do in their life now. Yeah. They they find time, to, it's trying to fit what they can commit themselves <coughs> to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is the problem, I think, because they'd rather do this this week 
next week I will do church. I'll, you know, and that's how it tends it's to be. A busy culture. We live in a, a, a busy culture. I tend not to disagree with that to a point because I did a lot of sport when I was a kid. Uh -huh. um, but I also knew that I was going to commit to something to do with the army on the weekend or yeah. during the week for taxes for second week back like banks, etc. So there was the balance there. Yeah. But competing priorities. Yeah, yeah, it was it? Definitely. Anybody else want to speak into that or add another one? Relevance. Who said relevance? I did. What do you mean by relevance? I think in terms of that, the conversations that are being had, so some of the barriers, so sometimes young people don't feel like they can talk maybe about LGBTQ issues because they're not sure if they're going to be judged, uh, conversations about sex and things like that. Sometimes they're things that we're not always comfortable with having those conversations and that's the conversations that young people maybe sometimes do want to have but don't feel that <coughs> necessarily we don't always feel we are able to have or we we feel awkward or how are we going to have those conversations how are we going to say the right thing and so for young people i wonder if sometimes there's a relevance to, to stuff yeah, and, and will this have a conversation? One of the cringiest moments of my teenage life was at a youth camp when they had the sex conversation. I was like, yeah, we've been talking about this for ages. Like, we know about this already. Like, we thought we were going to get level two tonight, but this is, yeah. Yeah, relevance. Good. Anybody, anybody else? Yeah, I think understanding what they see as church is yeah. a big challenge. Yeah. Um, it's a stereotypical church, isn't it? You go, you sit down, you be quiet, you get preached at, and then you go home. That's our church. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, sorry. But that's not, yeah, that's not what church is for young people. And like from a, like, so from my perspective as, as an officer, I was to think, we've got this big thing of like the church, this cosmic family of God that's existed for 2,000 years, it becomes part of the people of God. How does that? How do we, how does that become relevant? How does that become exciting? What is what is the church? Good, really good question. Um, anybody else? Yeah, um, Emily. Problems at home or peer pressure. Yeah. Because if they if they're in a household that doesn't have any faith and they're wanting to go to church, they could be getting mocked by their own parents for going, or mocked yeah. by their pe people in school. So young people don't live in a vacuum. Um, we're not like some kind of. Amish community removed from the world. There are all kinds of pressures that exist upon all of us in our culture that we live in for good um, as well as for challenge too. Anybody else anything else? Just to link to the what is church, um, I had an interesting conversation only the last, within the last week about what do you get by going to church? Yeah. So like what is church for rather than what is church against? So like what is the narrative that we sell to advertise church? in yeah. terms of the, the unwritten things of all the things that you can't do as a Christian yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than actually yeah. what is the advantage to going to church and whether that's being belonging or whether that's actually standing for something bigger yeah yeah some of the people that are supernatural believe in that don't see that supernatural power in their local church in a local yeah yeah and I think one of the things like my I don't know um, I don't take up loads of time. Like my own testimony, so I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My first um, connection with the Salvation Army is when I was six, and my neighbour's grandma went to a lunch club at the Salvation Army. They started a kids' club during the week, and I was invited to that. And I got into that, I to go to Sunday school, started to go to church, and it was like it was a really small core with a slightly batty and eccentric officer. I can't remember any of her sermons or anything, but I remember even as a teenager and as a child. 
this community that was a great family to be part of and I wanted to be there because of the family and the community that it offered. How do we sell that if that's not the experience that people experience in a local setting? Let's have one or two more before we move on. So I can take two. So one, culture of self within within the world. It's about what do I want. I'm okay, thank you very much. Um, Lee said something fantastic about this, about resilience, before everyone picked up on it. It was a bit of uh, notice that resilience is not is it individual, something about hyper individualistic or that it's like we live in a culture that is individualistic? Uh, is, yeah. And the second and one, says social media 24 7 and echo chambers. Social media echo chambers. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. It just ties into all of that is accessibility. Access. What do you mean by accessibility? While I try and think of how so to spell it. So, some of these things might be a hindrance to it, so it might be the relevance or people's priority so it's that kind of and what is our definition of church yeah, yeah. so how do you access that at what point and what level so church is 10 yeah. o'clock on a Sunday morning yeah. then yeah um, anyway, so one more sorry Claire, and then there's also a difference between children that, and young people that are brought up in the Salvation Army so I'm at quite a traditional core and that the young people that I'm seeing now at a traditional core are more like the young people that were in the in the Salvation Army when I was growing up Whereas at my last call, it wasn't very traditional, the young people were more like what you see in the community yeah. now. So my young people now are very traditional. They're not so much bad than songsters, but they're very inward facing. They only go to stuff that the cause they're in. They don't mix divisionally, they don't do anything else. Yeah. Whereas bef my young people that weren't part in the army were more outgoing. Yeah, and something about this generational, I think, and this is really, when we're talking about the, um, was it with the affiliative faith that second bring? There are some adults in our core that have just got an affiliative faith. They've just got the inherited faith that they said, "Oh, this is mine." And, uh, it's not really mine. It's just what's been passed on to me. But this dimension between in and out. Um, last point. Uh, yeah, I think quite simply, homework levels have increased dramatically, and, and we're finding even with our church families, um, the their children uh, struggle with the amount of homework. Yeah, pressures that exist from all kinds of angles, absolutely. I said that last one, anyone having a burning to say that we just And COVID. And I think um, COVID has done a lot to kind of weed out the affiliative yeah. layer of people who are just there because of that, and people have realised, like, oh, I could like just enjoy being in, in bed on a Sunday morning. Like, yeah. I don't know. Well, and two years is a long time in the lifespan of a teenager. Yeah, yeah. You know, in, in that. So hold on to some of those challenges, and hopefully, what we'll do for the last sort of twenty minutes might speak into how we might address some of that by how we how do we take the insight of. Uh, psychology um, or of the, the, the spirituality research, how does that sort of land? And um, there are three elements to a searching faith we're going to um, think about. Um, and then Westerhoff says uh, a searching faith, a teenage faith, is characterised by critical thinking, self-consciousness and doubt. So what we're going to do is sort of five minutes on each and then there'll be, if, there's, if you've got questions as we go, that's okay, um, just shout out your questions, we'll keep the conversation going. Um, we'll ask questions again at the end. Um, but I'm going to sort of break down you know, what is each of these things 
Um, how might it affect spirituality and thus what might I do in practice as a result? So kind of like a, what is it, so what, now what? So like, what is critical thinking, well, so what, now what, for each of those uh, points. Um, first of all, critical thinking. Um, you might want to, uh, we'll, we'll just shout, if there's a good uh, vibe there, we'll shout them out. Um, to help us understand the what of critical thinking, I'm going to put a picture on the screen and tell you a story. And I want you to imagine uh, that you've come from like out of space. Uh, it'd be easier for some of you to imagine than others, I think. And um, that you're hearing this story for the first time. And I want you to think about what questions, like as an adult, hearing this story for the first time, that you've never heard it before, what questions do you want to know about this story? Okay. So the story is about a man um, who lived about 6,000 years ago. And um, he was a good man. And there was another thing called God. And God said that the world was evil. A lot of not very nice men and women in the world. So he said to this man, what I want you to do is build a boat, make it this big, by this big, by that big. Um, and into the boat, I want you to find two of every kind of animal from all across the planet and get them onto the boat. And then I'm gonna flood the world. So the, the God thing, the creator thing floods the world. The boat floats. Um, the guy, the good guy who's called Noah, him and his family, they all get on the boat. Um, then um, eventually the waters subside and they rebuild the world. And this happened 6,000 years ago. Okay? So what questions, as you're listening to that story, trying to listen to it for the first time, what questions spring into your mind about it? That's got to be a big boat to squeeze all those animals on. That's got to be a big boat to squeeze those animals on. <laughs> Is it going to float? Is it going to float? So you wouldn't know what the size of animals are. <laughs> what, what, what is evil? What is evil? Yeah. yeah. What makes evil? Ellie? Why aren't all the animals in the same place now? Why aren't all the animals in the same place now? Yeah. Anybody else? What about the dinosaurs? Were there any dinosaurs on the boat? What about the food chain? What about the food chain? Did all the animals make it off the boat? <laughs> Anybody else? Was he the only good man? Was he the only good man? How could God be good if he destroyed all of everything that he'd already made once before? Oh. Where did all the water come from? Where did all the water come from? Where did it go? Where did it go? Where did the boat go? Where can I find the boat today? Where is the wood? Where is the... Now, what we've just done there, we can keep going about it. What we've just done is an exercise in critical thinking, which Westerhoff says defines a searching spirituality, a teenage spirituality. And when you become a teenager, it's part of a brain, it's like it's switched on that all of a sudden you start to think critically, whereas a child might accept the awe and the wonder of the story, teenager starts to ask a million questions about it in a different way. They call critical questions, questions that are trying to weigh up evidence. If you think about how um, our education system has changed, um, like in the, in the 50s, I don't know anybody in this room went to school in the 50s, but the, the, the theory of education was, teacher stands at the front and like, just dumps information into your brain and an exam measures how much of that information you could retain or explain. But education now is about critical thinking. It's about how do I weigh up values? How do I um, give importance to things or not? And if that's the way that um, our, our culture has moved, if that's the thing that is switched on in the brain of a teenager, that affects their spirituality. Um, and when you're a teenager, um, lots of questions pop into your mind, just like that. It's almost like you're hearing th things for the first time again, and you start to think about it critically. And there have been times in the church where um, people have been scared of critical thinking. 
what if the evidence doesn't stack up anymore? And um, a book that I think I think it's probably the first book that I guess I read that was the first theology book I read that was about thinking critically and deeply and drawing on something bigger than ourselves was a book called Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell. And um, he says this about critical thinking. He said, I've orient- I orientated my life around studying, reading, teaching, and trying to understand the Bible. I continue to find the Bible the most mysterious book. The more insight I gain, the more I realise how much I don't know. It inspires and encourages, and it also frustrates and provokes. And that's what teenage brains are starting to switch on to. There are lots of different ways of looking at things. There are lots of questions that start to emerge. And it becomes the adult realization that mature adults can deal with. I have questions that I don't have answers to. I have more questions than I have answers to. Or in fact, the more I learn about something, the more complicated it becomes. But for a teenager, um, that can be a disorientating thing to start to think critically about faith. So if that's what it is, and that's uh, that's the so what, then the, the now what? what? What might we do in our youth word practice that nurtures and feeds this part of teenage spirituality? Um, well, I think the, the two sort of things for me that come out of it, there are two tensions. Um, the first tension is bet- between what I'm calling content and <coughs> questions. And uh, what I mean by that is, if you've ever sat down to do your teen cell group, say, um, you might have started to feel this question between, we're looking at a passage from the Bible, um, how much is my job as the, the teacher or the facilitator, how much of my job is about handing on information about the right answer of this passage? So if it was Noah, how much of my um, role is about defining what evil is, as Vanessa said, or explaining who God is? How much of my role um, is about um, saying, well, when Genesis was written, this is what that meant? And how much of my role is about asking the right questions and giving space for teenagers um, and those that are engaging in the group to be able to ask questions? And there's a tension because there's stuff about Christian faith that we want to pass on to other generations. There are stories that are worth retelling and um, there are some things that are right to believe and some things that are maybe more dubious. We call those heresies at the training college. Um, you're starting to know all about heresies. And um, yeah, there's, there's right belief and there's incorrect belief sometimes, but how much of that is about, in a, in a group setting, is about us giving space to explore and to ask the right questions. And then the other tension is between, is our role to provide education or is it to provide experience? And um, I think one of the, the things that I think is interesting on this for, particularly for young people, we could say education or entertainment, how much of what we are spending doing in our sessions is about trying to occupy young people, to keep them busy, to keep them active, to pass stuff on, and how much is about them experiencing something of their identity in Christ, them experiencing something of God's love for themselves, because that'll be what will sustain them. That's picked up really well in what Andrew was talking about um, this morning, on this, on this understanding of nature and our identity as the beloved child of God with whom God is well pleased. So I think there's some of the tensions that come out of critical thinking. Has anyone got any questions or observations or comments about that? I think what I have seen, youth is not youth focused, devaluing a person for asking a question um, and made them to feel stupid. And if their question wasn't worth asking, and to me no question is stupid, I ask plenty of it myself. Um, 
and then they don't ask anymore. Yeah. You know, and it's making them feel well. Actually, let's explore this together. Or if I don't know an answer, they will push it to one side. And I, I can also say I pushed questions to one side because I don't know the answer to it. Yeah. But instead of embracing it and going, actually, I don't know. Let's look at this together. Embracing questions and though embracing is a really good way of putting it. Rather than yeah. going, oh, I don't know that. We'll just forget that and move on. And yeah. I've seen so many young people come discouraged because they're not valued in the questions that they're asking. Uh, hold that thought about devaluing your questions because we'll come back to that in a second, a really important point. Anybody else want to chip in at this point? I think it's also accepting that and allowing the Holy Spirit to actually work and that they're at work in that young person's life. And actually sometimes it's a mutual, we learn from them. So sometimes their questions and things that come out, actually their questioning actually encourages us to question too. And sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know, I'm still on that journey myself. Yeah, I think the really important thing that you said there as well is about recognizing the work <coughs> of the Holy Spirit in a young person's life, because that's where it comes into the experiential stuff. That's something we experience. That's something that goes beyond simply what our head knowledge is and our critical thinking does. Yeah. Good, let's just move uh, forward so we can keep to um, time. Um, we're gonna do uh, a little, uh, uh, later. Go do just a little um, quiz that's gonna come up on the screen. And what I want you to do is you need to count the number of times that you see the white team pass the football. All right, that's what you're looking for in this clip. How many passes does the team in white make? Go! The answer is 13. Yes. Get right, and get wrong. But Sorry. did you see the moonwalking bear? <laughs> no! Did anybody not see the moonwalking bear the first time around? There are some that you just didn't notice it, did you? That's, that's amazing. I didn't think that was going to work, but you're much more gullible than I was. That's incredible. Um, because the, um, that is all about, you know, what are you noticing? What is it that stands out to you? Um, like we said, the first part of Westerhoff's definition of searching faith is critical thinking. The second strand to it is about self-consciousness. It's about what you start to notice for the first time. Um, another really um, influential book about faith development is uh, James Fowler's Stages of Faith. And he reflects on what the, the searching faith of a teenager and says that puberty brings with it a revolution in physical and emotional life. Adolescents need mirrors, mirrors to keep tabs on this week's growth, to become accustomed to the new angularity of a face and the new curves, but young people need mirrors of another sort too. And what he's saying is that, again, another thing that sort of switches on in the life of a teenager becomes this self-consciousness. You start to notice things that you hadn't noticed before about yourself, and about other people. And um, Fowler says, you know, he picks up saying this, that means that people look in the mirror a lot more. But I'm really sort of intrigued by this idea of that young people need mirrors of another sort too. We need other points of reflection, other points that feed into something um, in our lives. And um, one of the things that's really interesting about the, the challenges that you listed um, earlier, um, basically in terms of youth spirituality, um, is how much loads of other stuff act as a mirror for young people that offers them some sense of feedback that, um, that speaks into their lives. And um, one of the questions that I think when it comes to discipleship is, 
It's not a question, and Caleb, again, what Lee was talking about, it's not a question of whether young people will be discipled or not. It's a question of who and what will be discipling them. Um, if the faith community isn't, if the church isn't, that actually um, young people need above all else that we can offer is a mirror, a mirror that speaks <coughs> back true identity, a mirror that offers a safe space, a mirror that speaks um, truth and uh, that offers um, that safe space that's been talked about. So if that's the what and the so what, um, the now what, what we might think about um, in terms of self-consciousness, um, the, the Fuller Youth Institute, and there's some good resources that come about, your Sticky Faith, and you want to um, find it online, they talk about the five to one ratio. They say that every one young person should have five mirrors, if you like. They should have five people that speak into their lives um, to create this safe space to create this, um, uh, these kind of loving mirror relationships. And um, we might call that mentoring is another word that we use for it. And our Youth and Children's uh, Ministries Unit have um, just relaunched or relaunching a one-to-one -one discipleship resource. Um, and I reckon post-COVID, the next time um, I'm involved in a youth group, I think I'm not gonna put as much effort into trying to have loads of fun um, and do crazy ideas and slip and slides and barbecues and camping weekends, I reckon I'd put more effort into making sure that young people had those mirrors around them that positively spoke into their lives and into their existence. And then finally, the final strand of our West Hobbs faith is to do with doubt. Now, I'm going to put three quotes on the screen and I want you to tell me which quote is um, written or spoken by a Christian. Okay, that's the, the test for um, this part of it. Which one is from a Christian? So the first one, I think the trouble with me is lack of faith. Often when I pray, I wonder if I'm not posting letters to a non-existent address. Or, or the second one, if there is a God, please forgive me. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such a convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. I'm told God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great, nothing touches my soul. And, or, or I've had questions without answers, I've known sorrow, I have known pain. Anyone want to take a guess which is written by a Christian? Which one? Lack of faith. First one, isn't it? Lack of faith, a Christian? The last one. The last one? Well, you can all have a prize because you're all right, they're all written by Christians. It's C.S. Lewis who said the first one. Um, it was Mother Teresa who said the second one. as a Tim Hughes song that used to be trendy when I was a teenager. Um, in the third one. Um, and one of the things is understanding that, um, so teenagers reach a place, a place of self-doubt and doubt in faith. That switches on for the first time. Um, I've got, um, I, like, I watch my little kids sometimes in the meeting and um, like they dance and they sing and they're, they're so eager to get up uh, in the microphone at the front. And then you see teenagers that don't want to do that anymore. Self-consciousness, doubt takes over. And doubt becomes part, part of, um, of faith. And is there a God? Does he really love me? Does he really care? And one of the ways um, to deal with this part of faith um, is about um, normalising the fact that um, we don't all have it together all of the time, and sometimes we doubt, and yet at the same time there are things that are reliably known um, in life. Um, I love this, um, uh, this comes from um, the Fuller Youth Institute too. Um, doubt is not toxic to faith, silence is. Young people want conversations in response to their hardest questions, not just answers. Mm. Um, and that is, a, how do we create a space 
that normalizes um, questions. I think it comes back to that safe space, that modeling where it is to not always have answers. Um, and I love, um, I love this quote by um, one of my theological heroes, Leslie Newbig, and he says, our confidence is not in the competence of our own knowing, but in the faithfulness and reliability of the one who is known. We're trying to foster young people to not just be people that can recite their Bibles or their doctrines or believe the right things, as important as that is, we want young people that know who God is through his son, um, Jesus. So normalizing doubt is another great way of uh, nurturing teen spirit.